we're going to look at chapter 2, verses 12 through 13. And this is printed in your bulletin. If you have a Bible, I would encourage you to pull that out as well so that you might look at some of the other passages with me as we um, consider the context of this passage. But I'll go ahead and um, read the passage and then pray, and then we'll dive right in. So this is Philippians chapter 2, starting at verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Let's pray. Father, now as we come to do this work of looking at your word and hearing from you that we might apply the truth of it to our lives, we ask that you would do that work in us that you've promised here. That work that you began, and uh, as Paul says in Philippians 1.6, that the work that you began, you will surely bring to completion. We praise you, Lord, that you are a God who does not simply sit in heaven and observe, but you are a God who is active in the lives of his children, in the lives of even those who are opposed to him. Lord, you bring all things together for your glory. So we praise you for your sovereignty this morning, your rule over all. We praise you that you sent Jesus to bring us back into right relationship with you. And I pray now that you would help us to see Christ in this passage, to make much of him. Holy Spirit, I ask that you would come, teach us, um, rebuke us, correct us, do all the things that, that you would do in the hearts of your people for the glory of Christ and for our great joy in him. In Jesus' name. Amen. So one of the most interesting TV shows that I've watched in recent years is Downton Abbey. Anybody ever seen that before? Okay, you don't have to raise your hand or anything. Maybe some. Okay, Sally, it's okay. It's good. This is a safe place. (laughs) Downton Abbey is a show set in the early 1900s, and it is set in the context of an English estate That is, again, in the early 1900s, there's this shift in the way that England kind of is starting to run. It's becoming much more democratic, and there's a change in the class system. But the setting of the show is on this huge estate that is uh, that employs some 15 to 20 people, servants, um, in the house, um, but then also owns lands outside of the estate that is rented out to other people to work and to live in. And and so it's, it's kind of a staple of the community. The, probably the main character there is the, um, the one that is called Lord Grantham, and he is the owner of the state in a sense. He calls himself the custodian of it. Um, he's the inheritor of it. And um, this, this series starts with a question of inheritance, of moving forward and what will happen. And, and it's really cool if you're a history buff to watch the show and see how um, different world events play out in the story of the um, Crawley family. And uh, the beginning of the series begins with the crashing of the Titanic and that on the Titanic in this fictional story, well, of course, the Titanic did crash and you know, sink in real life. But in the fictional story, there are two characters that perish on the Titanic that would have been the inheritor of the estate, Downton Abbey. So the story opens with the newspapers coming in and finding out, oh, no, these two Fellows have passed away, and they would they would have been the inheritor. Now, interestingly enough, Lord Grantham, um, the one who is the custodian of the state presently in the story, he only ends up having three daughters, no sons, so no rightful heirs in that time period to the estate of Downton Abbey. The oldest daughter, Mary, who is um, an interesting character, uh, Mary Crawley, uh, expresses her frustration with the fact that she cannot be the inheritor of the estate. 
and that there will now be a, a cousin that she has no idea who, who, who they are. They're going to be coming into the estate and they're going to become the inheritor of everything that her family has built. And additionally, any money that that family owns, which the money really coming from Lord Grantham's wife, Cora, is also going to be absorbed into the estate and given to this complete stranger. And Mary's really upset with this. And she, she goes through the series, the first couple episodes, um, kind of quietly frustrated and expresses to her sisters and so, to some other people before she finally has this moment of blowing up to her father. Why aren't you sticking up for me? Why aren't you making a way for me to be the inheritor of Downton Abbey? This is not fair just because I'm a woman, just because I'm unmarried, et cetera, et cetera. Interestingly enough, this cousin who comes to live on the property and who becomes the inheritor, Lord Grantham spends much time with teaching him about the estate, teaching him what it's like to, and the, the importance of it, that it's not just a matter of living a, a cushy and rich lifestyle, but, but that you are, in a sense, you're leading this group of people and enabling them to live their lives in a good way. Well, Matthew Crawley, the cousin here, um, has an interesting uh, standpoint in this because he's not interested at first, but then he becomes interested in it. He sees the good of it. And so he um, gladly accepts this inheritance. And Mary, frustratingly, is looking to her father, Lord Grantham, to work into her life something that she can't have simply because she is not the inheritor. It's kind of tragic to begin with. I'm actually going to finish up that illustration at the end of this sermon. So I know you're anxiously waiting on the edges of your seat to see how this plays out. But as I, as we consider this passage and consider the work of God in us, we have to come to a starting point where we see in verse 12 that Paul is talking to the beloved. And this term being given to the church. The church who is the rightful heir of salvation, you know, in Christ. Those who have believed on Christ for salvation and now live in him. And that those who do not know Christ do not have a place in, in God's kingdom that is equal to that of those who do, the, the people of God. Those who have repented of sin and trusted that what Christ did at the cross, did it on their, he did on their behalf, are now part of the family of God and brought into this blessed standing of um, the family of God. So this passage launches from last week's passage that we looked at in 2 verses 5 through 11, starting with the humility of Christ and ending with the exaltation of Christ. So we ought to recognize that as we jump in here at verse 12, because there's a very important word at the beginning of verse 12. What is that word? Therefore, and this is going to be corny, but get ready. Whenever you see a therefore, you have to ask the question, what is it there for? Okay, because it's referring back to something that was said before. So in light of that beautiful passage of the humility of Christ, that he would come and become like us, that he would take on flesh, that he would become a servant, that he would walk in obedience to the point of death, even to the point of death on a cross. Now Paul says, therefore, my beloved, walk in obedience. Do, do this in light of what Christ has done. Since he has purchased you and he has made you his and you are um, a part of the family of God, live in anticipation of what verse 11 says, that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father and walk in obedience. Christ has been vindicated from his humiliation on the cross and so shall we if we live a faithful life in Christ, him working through us, we will also be vindicated as well one day in heaven. We'll talk about that later. But I also want you to hear that there is joy created in this passage as well. 
Okay, this is, again, our, our main theme, our, our big word that we're looking at in Philippians is joy. And there is not the presence of the actual word joy yet again here, but it is um, running through this whole story. And so as we read this and we consider, you know, why should I obey? What kind of work is going on? There's joy in knowing that God is working in our midst as we work out our salvation. So this first verse, verse 12, is Paul's appeal for obedience. And obedience, I think, is often something that we as the church uh, struggle to understand. Because are we in right standing with God because we have obeyed him in some way? This is why we struggle to understand, right? No, we can't give a clear answer right away. Because in one sense, we are called to obey the gospel, right? Well, what is the gospel? Jesus Christ, the Son of God, becoming human, taking the punishment that we deserve for our sins, our crimes against God upon himself, rising again and calling us to believe in him for salvation, believe in no one or no no thing else but him, that that is an act of obedience in a sense, right? Putting our faith in Christ. What we'll see in this passage in verse 13, though, is that as we work out our salvation, it is God who is working in us to will and to do for his good pleasure. So it's not enough to just simply say that in order to become a Christian, I need to believe. We also have to say, in order to become a Christian, God needs to save me, right? It's not one or the other, it's both. So as we consider obedience, we consider what Paul is calling us to, we have to look at this context of saying that Paul has laid out who Christ is and what Christ has done. And in light of that, in light of what he's done in your life to make you new in him, and now he's working in you to will and to do for the good pleasure of God. Walk in obedience. And the first thing he says about obedience is that it shouldn't be affected by any other human presence. So look at it again. As you have always obeyed, so now not only is in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation in fear and trembling. So his exhortations is basically this. Walk in obedience whether you know that I'm looking over your shoulder or not. We've seen this earlier earlier already in um, chapter 1 where Paul has made this appeal of saying, you know, whether I'm here, whether I'm not, you know, walk in faith in Christ. Walk out your obedience to him. Paul addresses them again as the beloved. And we, so we already know the care that Paul has for the church. We see it in chapter 1, verse 7, where he says, I hold you in my heart. In verse 8, he says, I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ. Verse 24 of chapter 1, he says, even though if, if I had the choice, if I could decide to go to be with, with Christ in heaven forever, that's a great thing. That's a far better thing than being here. But it's more necessary on your account that I would stay. So therefore, I want to stay in order to be a, a benefit to you. And then in verse 2 of chapter 2, when he, when he, he begins rather in verse 1, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, participation in the Spirit, any affection, any sympathy, if any of these things are true, if you've experienced this in the love of God poured out on your heart through Christ, then do what? Complete my joy. Oh, okay, so Paul, what is this that you want out of this? He says, complete my joy by being of one mind. So Paul's heart for the church is, is obvious here. And so when he calls them beloved, we don't just mean to, to look at it and say, okay, well, he's just being nice here. He is expressing the heart he has for God's church. In considering obedience, I always come back to, and I'm going to apologize for any future references to this passage that may seem like overkill. 
But this passage just speaks so clearly to the nature of obedience. Um, this is 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 22. And you can kind of start to read that as I give you a little bit of background into what's going on here. But Saul is the king. And was Saul a good king or a bad king? He was a bad king. There were not very many good kings, right? Saul was, was a terrible starting point for the, the kingdom of Israel. And Saul has already disappointed Samuel, has already disappointed God. And in chapter 15, verse 22, you're seeing up here Samuel's response to Saul after Saul had offered a sacrifice before going into battle. Well, what's so bad about that? Offering a sacrifice sounds like a really good idea. Well, Saul's not supposed to offer sacrifices. He's the king. The one who's supposed to offer sacrifices is the priest, Samuel. And Samuel said to Saul, wait here, I'll show up, I will offer a sacrifice, and then you can leave. Well, Saul's sitting there and he's getting impatient because he doesn't believe that Samuel's showing up on time, not showing up on Saul's time frame. So Saul says, you know what? Bring me a lamb. I'll make the sacrifice. We'll go ahead and go for it. And as he makes the sacrifice, Samuel shows up. And Saul tries to explain what's going on. And Samuel says, look, I know what you're doing here. Listen. So Samuel said, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. So what is Samuel getting at here? Does the Lord have a great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices? compared to just the simple act of obeying what the Lord has actually commanded you to do? Obedience is not a matter of us looking at what God has told us to do and then coming up with our own expression of it, but rather looking at the word of God and saying, yes, Lord, I will follow you in this. Saul decides in 1 Samuel 15, I'm not going to follow. I'm not going to listen. I'm going to do my own thing. So Samuel says, behold, to obey is better than even a sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. Very interesting passage. If you're ever um, listening to a guy from the 70s and 80s named Keith Green, he has a great song called To Obey is Better Than Sacrifice, and highly recommend it to you if you um, need some listening later on. Um, another passage I want to recommend to you is Judges chapter 11 in considering obedience. We have a, um, a judge named Jephthah here who is called on by God to save God's people, as is the cycle of the book of Judges, that God's people are um, taken captive by their enemies. The enemies, they cry out to God. God sends them a savior and they rejoice for a little while and they go right back into idolatry and their enemies take over them again. And that cycle continues and continues throughout the book. Jephthah was one of the chosen judges in Judges chapter 11. God filled him with the spirit. God told him to go and, vent, go and save his people, be victorious over the enemies of God. And Jephthah makes a vow to God. He says that the first thing that comes out of my house um, when I return from victory, if you give me victory, the first thing that comes from my house, I will offer as a sacrifice. Well, does anybody know what the first thing was that came out of his house? His daughter, right? Now, it should have been a moment where Jephthah looked and went, oh boy, I've made a terrible mistake. This was not a good idea. I shouldn't have made such a vow. In fact, he really shouldn't have made a vow at all because God had already said, this is what I want you to do. He didn't need to ask God for victory. Well, the tragic thing is that he does actually go ahead with his sacrifice. It's pretty scary. 
But it shows us the nature of obedience, that we need not to add to anything that God has commanded us to do. We don't need to even make a deal with God in our in following and obedience. Obedience is not a matter of saying, I'll give you this, you give me this, and it's an exchange. Our obedience is working out what God is already doing in us. And that's what we see in this passage. Work out your own salvation because God is at work within you. So again, that's Jephthah in Judges chapter 11 if you want some additional reading later on. We have the full revelation of God's word, which is the greatest benefit that God's people have ever had. You know, we, we still, we live in this era where it's, the word is complete. It is available to us. We're free to read it. The fact that he has spoken to us so thoroughly should help us in our process of seeking his will. You know, that's one of the, I think probably the most, the biggest question that Christians have so often is what is God's will for my life? Well, it's, it's shown here in his word. And it does, it, does it go to specifics and saying where you should live, who you should marry, what job you should take, how many kids you should have, those kind of things? No, those are things that are left up to your, um, your freedom of following God as, as you see fit, as you see that you can best serve him. And that's a great thing. But if we spend time in God's word, if we spend time with him, seeking his will, although that's a great thing to do, it's an excellent thing to set time aside in prayer and in his word and to seek counsel from other people, it ought not be something that we're afraid of that we would miss God's will, but we would delight in the fact that as we work out our salvation, as we, as we work with God, he's working in us to will and to do for his good pleasure. Moving forward in the life of the church as we consider this idea of obedience, it's going to become more necessary for the church in Philippi, especially as we consider the future of Paul. So when Paul says, whether I'm here or whether I'm not here, walk in obedience, um, later on down here in verse 18 of chapter 2, I'm sorry, verse 17, he says, even if I'm to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I'm glad and rejoice with you all. Paul is beginning to have a sense that I'm most likely going to die for this message that I'm preaching, right? Um, where is he right now when he writes Philippians? He's in prison already, right? So he kind of is getting the sense, you know, there's some great opposition. But at this point, I believe that God is showing Paul, you know, this is kind of the road that you're walking down. This is where you're headed. So in the event that Paul becomes martyred, uh, he's ca- ta- talking to the Philippians and says, don't let your obedience be con- contingent or dependent on any one person except for Christ. Walk in obedience to God as he's working in you. This idea of suffering that Paul is going through is, is not unique just to Paul or the other apostles, but we see Paul warning the Christians in Philippi about this, this very fact of suffering. In verse 29, this is chapter 1, verse 29 through 30. He says, it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. It's fascinating here that as we consider evangelizing, we don't really tell people, hey, believe and suffer for Jesus and you will be saved, right? Well, certainly we don't because suffering is not a prerequisite to salvation. But as we look at what Paul's talking about here, when we think about putting faith in Christ and think about following him, we don't usually call people to suffering, do we? But here he is doing that. And look at verse 17 of chapter 2, right below it. Even if I'm to be poured out, we read this already, if I'm to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. So even stranger than the fact that he says we're called to suffering, we're called to follow 
the God-man Jesus Christ who suffered in our place, we are also called to follow him in suffering. Paul shows that he's actually rejoicing and is glad in, in spite of it, that that did not kill his joy. Pretty incredible. So let's look at the, this next idea, the command to work. So you, you probably already noticed the difference between um, verse 12 and verse 13 in that Paul says, you work out, work out your own salvation. And then in verse th- 13, he says that God is working in you, right? So we can already see that big difference between the workings of man and the workings of God, workings of the people of God and the workings of God in his people. And we're going to see how that plays out in relationship in verses 14 through 18 next week. And for now, we need to kind of look at the tension that this creates. Because there is a a great conversation that has gone on for the life of the church in trying to understand the role of God and the role of God's people and how they match up, right? So as we said earlier, in order to be a Christian, I have to believe in Christ, right? I have to confess faith in him. But God also has to save me. There's something about salvation. Actually, there's a whole about salvation that I can't bring about myself. I cannot bring myself into right standing with God. Only God can do that on my behalf. And the Bible says in Ephesians that we're actually spiritually dead in trespasses and sins and unable to walk in God's righteousness, to obey his command. It's fascinating, even way back in the Old Testament, when um, Moses says, here's the, here's the word of God, here's how to live as God's people, will you obey? And the, and the people of God say, we will obey, and then Moses says, you can't obey. <laughs> you know, even all the way back in the Old Testament, this, this clarity that what God calls us to is not something that is far from us, but it's something that we're unable to attain on our own. And so as we consider working out our salvation, this individual instruction, when he says your own salvation, he is referring to individual responsibility. He's not abandoning the concept of unity that we've seen thus far in the first two chapters in that um, Paul is calling us to unity, even in, again, verse 2 of chapter 2, that um, the completion of Paul's joy would be found if God's people would be unified, be of one mind. He says that over and over again. He's not, in a sense, saying, okay, now let's just talk to the individual, but the individual responsibility has a corporate consequence. So Alistair Begg said in preaching about this, he said, we cannot grow as a church unless we're going individually. Very fascinating. And true, right? I mean, unless there's individual growth, the church itself, we as a collective, cannot grow. God works through individuals to grow individuals. Um, We ought to take advantage of the good things that the Lord has given us, like his word, a freedom to read it. There there are um, Christian literatures that are incredibly helpful for us as we try to follow Christ more closely. Um, there's, again, the, the greatest gift that he's given us, his Holy Spirit living inside of us, changing us, calling us to follow Christ. There's other believers around us that we um, call out to for accountability, for um, answered questions, for uh, motivation to follow Christ. All these kind of things are available to us in Christ today. It is our responsibility, but it does not extend only to our benefit when we consider our growth, when we consider our working out our own salvation. So Alec Mottier, the uh, commentary writer that I've been reading throughout this study, said that Christ-likeness is the Christian's greatest concern. And we've said multiple times already that um, 
in that we are here as believers in Christ, if the question arises, why are we still here? Why is it that God doesn't just beam us up to heaven so that we might be with him for eternity? There's really only one great difference between heaven and here, and that is that there are people here who don't know Jesus. And so clearly, the, the great difference is our great motivation, that we are here to show people who Christ is. And we have to walk in that. But in order to do that, we do have to have this great concern of Christ-likeness in our own lives. As we consider this idea of work, and so many of us, I think, maybe even as we sit in church on Sunday morning, are thinking, I have to get up and go to work tomorrow morning, or maybe I have to go to work later tonight. This idea of work in our culture, as much as we perhaps appreciate it and are thankful to have work, it often becomes something that we dread, right? We dread the starting of the work week. We look forward to the weekend. But from the point of creation, this idea of work, God has established as a good thing. And so to call a Christian to work out their salvation, while it is the tenure of the Christian until the day of Christ, we ought to look forward to these opportunities because of the second part that we're going to get to in a moment, that God is working in us. So how does he call us to work? He says, work out your own salvation with joy, with compassion, with patience. There's all sorts of things that we could put in here, right, Paul? Well, he chooses fear and trembling. Very interesting wording here. Again, to go to Alec Motier, the um, Irish commentary writer, he says that this fear and trembling is not a fear of what God might do to us, whether we obey or disobey, but rather it should be a fear and trembling of what we might do to him. I don't know if we think about this too often, but Paul does say in the New Testament that by our sin, we can grieve the Holy Spirit living inside of us. And so as children of God, it's not to say that we can bring harm to God. It's not to say that there is something we can take from him or that there is damage that can be done to him. But in the relationship that he's expressed to us, that he is our heavenly father and we're called to be his children, like a father can grieve the, the sins of his child, so God, the Holy Spirit in us, can be grieved by our sin. So as we consider working out our salvation, the reason Paul puts this idea of fear and trembling in here is to say, look, consider the fact that this is a high calling that God's calling you to. This is a high purpose. We're called to work out our salvation. Again, not work for our salvation, not work in our salvation, but to work out our salvation. To have this thing that God has given us, that's given us new life, and to see how that works out in our individual lives. It reminds me again of chapter 2, verse 5, the beginning of the section we looked at last week. The only imperative there was, in that whole section about the glory of Christ and his humility and exaltation, the only thing we're called to do is have this mind among yourselves. And that mind, he says, is already yours in Christ Jesus. So again, he's saying, have this, it's yours. So when we talk about salvation and working it out, we're not conjuring up some great morality or great wisdom, but rather we're working out what God is already doing in us. And we'll get there actually right now. So verse 13, the big reason, verse 13, that first word for is very important to us as we consider God working in for our will and our our work. So God's work is not conditioned by our working out salvation. Just because Paul puts our working out first in, in this passage doesn't mean that that is the, the, um, the, the first step. Okay, It's not to say that when you work out your salvation, then you can know that God's working in you. God will start working in you. 
Okay, and and this kind of goes again in the face of what many Christians today believe, almost as almost like a Bible verse that God helps those who do what, who help themselves. It's not in the Bible at all. The truth of the Bible is that God helps those who are completely helpless, who are completely hopeless apart from Him. And so Paul moves down to this thing. He says, look, you need to work out your salvation because God is at work within you. This is not a matter of saying you're on a solo mission and your responsibility of your working out your salvation is left only to you. God is with you in this. He is in you working out. working. Sorry, in you working in to will and to work for his good pleasure. It's amazing. So who does what? Who, how do we reconcile God's sovereignty and our responsibility? Because this, again, is this big question the church has been fighting over for 2,000 years. And the truth is, is that we don't reconcile them. We don't explain how those two things are true. How do we understand that God is completely sovereign and completely in control, and I am also called to walk in obedience? I have a responsibility to obey. Well, if God's in control, then he's the one who's telling me whether he's the one who's going to make me either obey or make me disobey. Well, we know that's not the case because, again, God calls us to obey, to walk in obedience. This is a beautiful passage when we think about it theologically to look at the mystery of the gospel. Because the mystery is you need to believe in Christ, but you can't believe in Christ apart from God drawing you to himself. And so the great thing about this is, is we consider the working out of our salvation, of walking in repentance from our sin, walking towards the things of God that we see, you know, will be coming up in the book of Philippians and we've seen already, we're working out that, that salvation that leads us to, uh, as Paul calls it earlier, the gospel-worthy life. We're not called to create this on our own, but to walk in what, what God is working in us already. It's pretty fantastic. Um, Charles Hodge, by the way, <laughs> was a theologian in the 1800s, and he said this, If God loved us only so long as we love him, and on that condition, our salvation would rest on our treacherous hearts. So I, I imagine he's appealing here to a passage in Jeremiah that says that the heart is deceitful above all things. The thing that the Bible says about our hearts that, are, uh, that are, have not been redeemed by Christ and not been made new is that they're deceitful. They lie to us. Our hearts lie to us. We know this, right? But Hodge says that, look, if, if God loved us only as long as we loved him and our and that was the only that was the condition our salvation would rest just on our treacherous hearts that we can't even trust rather again this word for saves us from imagining that we have to work on our own or create this on our own effort work out your salvation for god is at work within you he will as we read in philippians 1:6 as well he will bring to completion at the day of jesus christ the good work that he began in you we make no contribution to our salvation. We simply work out what God is doing in us. So this, this progress, this continual working out of salvation, we call it sanctification as we think theologically about what the Holy Spirit does. That um, in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, 18, Paul says, We all, referring to Christians, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image, that same image of the Lord. We're being transformed into the image of Christ to be more like him. Not that we become God, but that we become like him. 
We're being transformed into that same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So Paul teaches us here theologically to understand the Holy Spirit works in believers to transform them progressively or gradually over time to be more like the image of Christ. This is not an immediate working. We, we know this. If we've come to faith in Christ, we didn't suddenly realize that all of our sins were, were no longer a temptation for us. The, the consequence of sin had been done away with, right? But the presence of sin and the power of sin still stand, stares us in the face, and we walk in this progressive work of the Spirit to battle sin, to change the way we look at the, look at the world, and the Spirit does that in and through us. So as the Holy Spirit works in us, remember that God's purpose in working um, supersedes all of our failings and our doubts. Okay, This is not a matter of saying that my best efforts combine with God's best efforts and then we have this great progress of salvation. Rather, God is working in you right now. He's working in you moment by moment. If you're in Christ there, there's not, a, I mean, there are moments of significant growth. We've experienced that. You know, hopefully you have, as you have walked with Christ, you've experienced seasons where, you know, your love for the word, your love for other people, your, your obedience, your, your battling sin, you know, you may have taken great strides towards Christ likeness in that. And, and that's great. But even in the quiet times, God is still working. So I love this, this passage in Isaiah. Um, so Isaiah chapter 43, verses 12 through 13. God says, I declared and saved and proclaimed when there was no strange God among you and you are my witnesses, declares the Lord. And I am God. God is concerned in this passage with making sure that his people understand who he truly is. Also, henceforth, that is in the future tense as well, I am he. There is none who can deliver from my hand. I work and who can turn it back? When I became a Christian, I had um, lived a life of assuming my own self-righteousness growing up in church and, and you know, just, just imagining I'm a pretty good person, so God must accept me. He must love me. Um, and when I, when I found out that I was a sinner in need of a Savior and needed to repent of that sin and to trust in Christ and lean on Him for salvation, um, I, I was almost immediately felt like I was worried about how do I keep this up? How do I make sure that I don't lose this? And I read this passage like 12 years ago. And when I read the end of it, it just blew my mind. God says, when I work, who can turn it back? The implied answer is nobody. Nobody can work against what God is working. So if God has created a good work in you, Philippians 1.6, he who began that good work in you will bring it to completion. God does not leave things undone. Unlike me in so many cases. Another thing that we need to recognize here is this, this last part of the verse, that we, he's, he's working in us both to will to change our desires and to work to enable us and give us the ability to walk in obedience. For what purpose? For his good pleasure. So I started to think about this a little bit and started to think about the pleasure of God in work. And of course, I went to John Piper and thinking about that, right? Anything having to do with joy and pleasure and, you know, those kind of things. It has to, has to be, you know, the, the expert is John Piper on that. But anyhow, um, I was led then to Psalm 104 verse 31. We have this couplet here that's written in uh, Hebrew poetry, this call it Hebrew parallelism that, and we saw this a little bit earlier in uh, Sunday school today too. That's pretty cool. Um, but where one thing is said and then another thing is said, and it looks different, but it's carrying the same message. 
So may the glory of the Lord endure forever. May the Lord rejoice in his works. And Piper points out in talking about this passage that this is not a, a matter of him saying, of the psalmist saying, boy, I really hope that the glory of the Lord will endure forever. I really hope that the Lord will rejoice in his works. But if the first thing is true, we know the glory of the Lord will endure forever because we read the end of the book. We know that Christ will be exalted as verse 11, every, sorry, verse 10 of chapter 2 and verse 11. At the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. If that first part is true, the second part also has to be true, that the Lord will rejoice in his works. You know, even going back to Genesis and the creation, what does God continually say about his creation? He made this and he saw that it was good. He delighted in his works. He delights in the work that he's doing in you. Going over to 1 John verse three, chapter 3, verse 1, the beginning to continually think about what the Lord is doing. So he says, see what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. It's an incredible statement. And I I recognize that I throw that phrase around a lot, children of God, but there's there's so much to that because when God redeems us and makes us new in Christ, he doesn't simply make us neighbors of God or or even you know, associates of God or any. But we have this great phrase of being called children of God, brought into a strong relationship, founded in the love of a father for his children. He delights in his children. He loves his children as a good father does, and so we are. You know, so often we walk day to day in sorrow over. Even, even of our sin, which is, is rightful to do. It's a good fruit of, of our salvation. It's a good thing for us to, as we consider and examine our hearts to look for sin that we need to repent of and turn from. It is good for us to look at it and go, Lord, how can I continually walk in selfishness as I have? Or, or, you know, why can't I just, I, I gotta stop lying or whatever that temptation is that we, we struggle with so much. It's good for us to stop and to mourn over our sin. So long as we move forward into the joy of salvation, knowing that our sin is done away with. So I read an article earlier this week, and I actually shared it twice because I thought it was so good. I wanted you all to read it. I wanted everybody to read it. But it's by a guy named Randy Alcorn. And he was talking about how so often we live our Christian lives as if we are in um, a grumpy contest. You know, that like who can be the most disappointed with the culture? And that makes you the best Christian. You know, that's just not the case. So here's what Randy Alcorn says in this, in this article, which I'd love to share with you if you, you want it later on. But he says this, what if the church was known as the place that celebrates more than the world rather than less? The ultimate payoff would be reestablishing Jesus's followers as profoundly happy people, quick to celebrate God's own happiness and grace. I love this call that he gives us. If the church was known as a place that celebrates more than the world, Again, we ought not ignore the sorrows and the tragedies that happen and that we see throughout the week. But you know, even just use the example of coming in on Sunday morning, we have a far greater thing to celebrate when we come together to worship than anyone in the whole world outside of the church, right? What could be greater to celebrate than the Son of God? Look at Romans 8, 31 through 39. Now, this is a long passage, and we're going to get into two slides with it here. But Romans 8, 31 through 39. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, 
but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, and who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, all these questions that Paul's asked, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us, who's working in us to will and to do for his good pleasure. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. I share this passage with you, this long passage, these nine verses, to say the foundation of what God has done for us in Christ should motivate us to rejoice in what he's continuing to do in us today. To know that God is at work in us to will and to do for his good pleasure. We don't need to muster up the correct idea of how we can please God with how we work out our salvation. He's working it in us already. We're just meant to take what he's given us and work it out. So hear the action of God in this passage. The assurance of his love, the security of his people in Christ. I don't see any greater prompting for joy for God's children than the joy of a father who delights to work in them. There's no greater incentive for children than knowing that their father is working. He's rejoicing in me. I'm his new creation. He's working in me, and I want to act that out. From this place of joy, we ought to press forward to work out our salvation in fear and trembling, not in, in fear of what he might do to us, but in the, in the seriousness of saying, I want to honor God with what I do. So here's the end of that Downton Abbey illustration. Because I know you were still waiting for it, right? That's kind of tuned out, and you're like, oh, i got to hear the rest of this. So again, if you remember Mary Crawley, the oldest of three daughters, not able to inherit the estate, it's going to a cousin that she never knew. And this cousin comes in, and, and she already doesn't like him, and it, it's not going well. And spoilers if you haven't seen this story yet, but it's been out for a few years now, so I'm going to use it. What eventually happens is Matthew and Mary fall in love, and Mary becomes the inheritor of the estate. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it's a really crazy twist. But what happens is, is that Mary, who thought she deserved the, the, the rightful inheritance of Downton Abbey and, and wasn't any part of it, became a part of it through her marriage to the one who had the inheritance. And so this great work of Christ in chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, this glorious exaltation of Christ, now, though we are, are here and now today, not yet in, the, in, this, in this heavenly setting yet, we can rejoice in, in taking part of the work that God did at the cross he's doing in our lives every day. We are now brought into that beautiful inheritance of the goodness of God and his love for his son, Jesus Christ. We are now called the children of God. And God is at work in us to will and to do for his good pleasure not for our own, not for any selfish motivation or reason, rather for his glory and for our joy. 